0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back to Suncast Solar Wars. It's so good to see you, hear you. Thank you for taking the time in your busy schedule to be with us. You are, in fact, giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending us the only non-renewable resource you've got, and we promise to take good Care of and give you an ROI on this investment of time. Today's entrepreneur is one whose name you may have heard recently if you listened to the episode from our Climate Avengers podcast with Devin Hampton. Because when I asked him, who do you recommend that I talk to next? McGee Young was the first name off of his tongue. I immediately reached out to McGee and we had a starburst of a conversation, as he and I recalled it, where Ideas were flying and I knew I needed to bring him on the show. McGee is a recovering academic who has launched himself into entrepreneurship to take what he has seen working in academia to put it to work, affecting change in the world. He has founded two previous startups than the one he's doing now, which is called Watt Carbon. Those were Meter Hero and H2O Score. They're software focused on helping homeowners save money, save water and energy and make a difference in their communities. Before Watt Carbon, he was involved in another business you might recognize called Recurve. We'll get into how he was looking at mapping and improving the energy efficiency, landscape, helping utilities measure what matters, and why he decided to leave that to start his current venture. I do hope that you are here to learn. We're going to deliver on that. I also hope that as a result, you'll subscribe to the podcast and join thousands of solar warriors and climate champions who join us every week to hear founder stories just like McGee more than 600 or so now and you can find them all in our back catalog in your podcast player or right in our back catalog at mysuncast.com for now let's get ready to tune up your skills solar warrior as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on suncast well i have to say this is probably the fastest turnaround well in years for sure on the suncast podcast of someone being both recommended then then having our pre-interview and actually doing the interview but McGee Young, I have a sense, is a fast start. And so this is nothing new for him. We've had lots of fun, some synergistic conversations just in the the scant week that we've known each other. I'm happy to finally bring you on to the show. McGee, you come highly recommended. Welcome to Suncast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: McGee, as we jump in, one of the pleasantries that I have been offering up at the beginning of these interviews is something that I call inspiring quote. Uh, actually, many people do. I just have this wall of quotes and I like to pull from them because I'm a quote hoarder. And so I wanted to share something with you and I'd love for you to share with us one of your favorite or inspirational quotes. Uh, and this is one that I very recently came across, in fact, uh, that is often un, uh, mis, uh, wrongly attributed to J.W. Marriott. Uh And the quote is, good timber does not go with ease. The stronger the wind, the stronger the trees. It actually comes from a much longer poem that Douglas Malick wrote called Good Timber that I would really encourage people to Listen or to read for themselves. I'll link to that in the show notes. As a as an entrepreneur, how does that quote strike you?
1: Yeah, I love it. It's it's kind of like uh, nothing good really comes if it's if it's too easy. Mm, that's right. And uh, yeah, definitely definitely resonates. Uh, there's there's one that's been kind of rattling around my head lately. I'm a big NBA basketball fan, and mm-hmm. you know the Denver Nuggets just won the the championship, and their their star player Nikola Jokic was. Reflecting on the journey uh, to get to that point, and he and he he said something that has kind of stuck with me. He said, "You know, at first we were bad, and and then we were good, um, but then we had to fail so that we could become great." Wow. And I thought that you know kind of hit at a lot of the same kind of themes that mm. it's really you know your ability to withstand the windstorm or overcome the adversity uh, that. Defines your staying power uh, in a lot of ways, and uh, for sure, you know, trying to start a company, uh, you encounter a lot of windstorms. So uh, true, and uh, the, the strong survive, I suppose.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate that 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 um, corollary. You know, you do have to really endure a lot to be great. I think his point is well taken that there are precedents. Um, or antecedents that come like thing. There are steps you have to take. And one of those steps to really be great is you have to know what it tastes like to fail. I've never met anyone except maybe Mark Zuckerberg who I haven't met that didn't fail in some like massive, massively life instructive way. Right. Um, Who really succeeded um, wildly. Most of the good entrepreneurs I know have that skeleton in the closet or, or, or many
1: yeah there's a there's a musician uh Jeff Tweedy who's the mm-hmm. frontman for a band called Wilco and mm-hmm. he has a line from one of his songs he says you have to learn how to die uh if you want to be alive
0: I love that I have not uh heard anyone quote that one that's really good digging way back in the archives for Wilco well is there uh McGee a quote that you feel is particularly pertinent to the work that you do or something that Kind of fits with your personality or your business or your work style. uh
1: Well, I would I would say that um, you know my personal career has been kind of this mix between trying to to understand the world and trying to save the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a there's a quote by Karl Marx where he says that the job of philosophers has always been to interpret the world, and the point, however, is to change it. Mm. And I you know I find myself Where I'm, where I'm, you know, most excited uh, is that part about changing it. Um, But where it's most comfortable is that point about interpreting it, because it's it's easy to kind of put yourself out there and to say smart things about the world and say, hey, this is how things work. And you can put that on Twitter or LinkedIn, and lots of people give it likes. When you go out and you try to change things, um, you open yourself up to a lot more criticism, a lot more you know, people saying, yeah, that's not a good idea or that's, you know, that's not the right thing or something. And so that's the, that's really actually the hard part is to kind of be vulnerable enough to say, like, I might be wrong about this, but I'm going to try to do the thing that I think is right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for me, that's sort of an inner tension that I, that I wrestle with.
0: Takes courage. With that in mind, I'd love to hear you enunciate as though we were just meeting one another at a Christmas party. You and I don't know each other, but we've gone to our respective partners' uh, sort of random business Christmas party, right? Um, <laughs> as we're engaged in dialogue, and um, and I, and I ask you, what is the general problem that you see in the world that needs solving? What what, do you, what would your answer be at a really high level?
1: I think at a high level, um, you know, I I grew up in a in a household where we kind of cared a lot about. The environment about um, issues like pollution and public health, and um, I saw uh, so many people that would come in and out of our lives who were also also cared about those things, uh, very passionate about the work that they they did, and completely outgunned by those who they're up against, you know the, whether it was you know some some big industry group or some you know oil companies. So what I'm trying to do is harness technology to help people change the world mm. and um, help people like, you know, my, my parents, their friends, the descendants of, of those folks, you know, today who um, see things that the same things that I see. We see climate change happening. We see, um, you know, the implications of that spreading you know, throughout the world. And and we understand what kind of things need to be done, um, but we, we just don't as individuals have the capacity to change things at a macro structural level. Uh, but technology gives us a path to even to even that playing field a little bit and um to overcome you know collective action problems that have historically made it difficult made it exceptional for mm-hmm. you know an environmental organization to have a real impact for example um so you know the particular problem that we're trying to solve you know immediately decarbonizing the built environment <laughs> it's part of a broader set of issues um, that we that I think that technology can help us um, leverage. We can leverage technology to help us create a future that we feel positive about.
0: Well, McGee, decarbonizing the built environment is indeed a very large task. Built environment being one of the major contributors to uh, climate change and uh, greenhouse gases. Introduce us then here in the outset to what Carbon, the business that you've built, and why it is designed to help solve the problem that you've just enunciated.
1: Yeah, it's a, it is, it is pretty big, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be as, it's not as complicated, I think, as, as people make it out sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got, we understand the implications, right? It's 40% of emissions come from uh, buildings, you know, either operationally or or from the materials that are used to construct them. And we more or less know what to do to decarbonize. We've, we've got to get, 100% clean energy on all of our grids, Uh, we have to phase out the use of fossil fuels for heating and cooking and that sort of thing and we need to make our buildings grid interactive so that they can help compensate for the intermittency of renewables. Uh, Now, part of the challenge is being able to quantify that to measure that right to say like, if I, if I, you know, turn off my heat for a little bit, or my air conditioner for a little bit, and that helps to alleviate some of the stress on the grid. Uh, That's an important and interactive part of the grid, but to be able to value that means that you have to measure that, and that's tricky. Uh, So uh, the way that we kind of started out the company kind of flowed from some of the work I had done previously Mm -hmm. uh, to really kind of build more science around measurement and verification, to use uh, data science software uh, to be able to increase the fidelity and the quality of, of that ability to see what's happening with buildings so that uh, we can start valuing them for the work that they're contributing to decarbonization so if i put solar panels on this building to measure that precisely if i put a heat pump into this building to measure the carbon reductions precisely if we do demand response in this building to measure that precisely Um, which then opens up a whole world of 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 a decarbonization market right Mm. as we think about the energy transition right now we, we think about it in kind of this like vague abstracts like these are good things to do but we really are still stuck with these legacy energy markets that we yeah. use to, to communicate value around um, and so as we kind of thought about what we could build with what carbon we thought what if we could just build a market that valued the decarbonization capacity of our buildings um, and then use that to leverage you know, fresh injections of capital into projects that were going to have the biggest impact
0: I mean, clearly you're an entrepreneur trying to build a solution not identifying the market, the incumbents, what exists, where we want to go is a part of building the value proposition, raising capital and deploying a product. If I am a building owner who has not found what carbon, what solutions exist for me today? What are my options for trying to mitigate the or turn off the tap absent your product?
1: it looks a lot like what I went through and I kind of went out and I found a guy to put on my, some solar panels and I <laughs> found another guy to, to, to string some, some, uh, a 220 cable to my garage so I could plug in my, my EV. And, and then I, I did a, a, a retrofit of my heater and put in a heat pump. And all along the way, I was kind of figuring it out for myself. Mm-hmm. Right. and And not really sure, even as deep as I am into this industry felt, you know, completely in over my head, uh, the whole time. Mm-hmm. Now there are good companies out there, uh, companies like block power, uh, quick carbon out here in the Bay area, um, elephant energy in, in the you know, Colorado area that are helping homeowners, building owners navigate some of that decarbonization landscape. Right. They're finding the right types of solutions, but they're still trying to figure out how to compete against the guy who rolls up with the natural gas furnace on the truck and says hey i'll do it for cheaper i'll do it faster (laughs) you know and and you're and 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 i and and you know this is going to work because this is what you already have And so so for us it's about kind of leveling that playing field a little bit giving the the companies out there that are helping homeowners do the right thing uh, find the resources they need to be able to do the the projects that contribute to decarbonization, and 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 frankly, the companies that are out there perpetuating the status quo to put them on the back foot, uh, to make it harder for them to compete with the same fossil fuel solutions
0: that have gotten us here today. Right, by providing those same fossil fuel solutions. So exactly. I recently had a conversation. I don't think you and I talked about this with my father, and he's building a little, uh, effectively. A- <laughs> Second house, if, in terms of square footage, but it's a little building, according to him, out back of his house, that he's going to, you know, put electricity in, and he's going to have a little uh, prep kitchen in there and whatnot. So I asked him what he was going to do, and in terms of powering it, and and what the kitchen, you know, appliances were going to look like, and I was just sort of gauging where he's at on the overall like electrification of everything. And he said, "Oh, I'll probably put a gas stove." Probably, and I was like, "Oh, really? I didn't know you had gas out here." He's like, "Oh, yeah, I installed a a propane tank a couple of years ago. That's what you know X Y Z appliances," he pointed out, "run on." And um, he goes, "It's just easier and cheaper. Uh, I'll just put another you know gas range out there and and run the propane line out to it, just like his grill." And I thought, well, the the father of someone who's been in the solar industry for eighteen years. Who's a staunch advocate for electrifying uh, everything and reducing fossil fuels? Is his default reaction still is fossil fuel? Oh.
1: I think the mistake that we make is that we try to shame your dad.
0: Yeah, we tried. Oh, I to, did. I tried to shame him big time,
1: and, and it not it, it doesn't work. I mean, it's
0: like, or it we tried work. to like. It got really, really fr- like defensive. He, he set yeah. in even harder.
1: Totally. Totally um or he, we we have these rebate programs that we yeah. set up well hey and 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 that's just a, that you get people who are already going to do it that sign up for those and it's like oh cool for people like me you know who mm-hmm. like uh, i'll take four thousand dollars off of my you know right. and the answer comes from your dad calling somebody who's and he goes hey this is what i want to do and they say hey i got a better solution for you yeah you might not have thought about this already, but look what we could do instead. And yeah. it's gonna and and your dad might not know this, but you know, in my perfect world, that person on the other end of the line is getting paid mm-hmm. for the decarbonization value of the project he's trying to convince your dad to do. Mm-hmm. And so now whatever it takes, if he can't convince your dad, then your and your dad does the propane thing, then and this guy doesn't get any extra payment because there's no decarb, right? But if he convinces your dad to put on solar panels and do a mini split and all the things that we know would actually make more Mm -hmm. sense. Induction range, yep. And then an induction range, exactly. Then uh, the the contractor on the backside gets a decarbonization payment.
0: This is someone that would be partnered with White Carbon uh, on the platform. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's fascinating. For what it's worth, if you're listening and you want to, Electrify my dad's home with your new products. You should reach out to McGee and I. We should have this conversation. Uh-huh, for sure. Not for nothing, we got thousands of listeners here. Uh, <laughs> um, I I said to my dad, I was like, "Gosh darn it, I'll go find some way to put solar on your property." And uh-huh. Then then you'll see. Then you won't think about propane. Uh, in the meantime, we have uh, we have to build these platforms that do connect the dots and also that that monetize these um, the the intangibles, right? Decarbonizing. <laughs> It's like a lot of folks say, well, how do, how does Lowe's and Home Depot offer all these rebates on electric lights, right? On on LEDs and, and CFLs before them. Well, lo and behold, it's like a macro version of what you're working on for consumers, it, right, McGee?
1: It's yeah, it's what utilities call market transformation programs mm. where they those rebates are subsidized by utility programs who are now being required by their state regulators to you know, this is called an upstream or a midstream rebate program where you're rebating at the point of purchase, and the customer shows up and they're like, "Oh, I heard about these LEDs. I heard they're better they, and now they're cheaper because I have yeah. this this rebate. and so like I don't even have to do the math. It just totally makes sense for me and and making it giving people that that easy button is I think part of the the, the key here.
0: I agree. I and mean, you look about if you look back at consumer adoption. We really didn't crack the nut on. I mean, look, companies like Cree made their entire wealth on cracking the nut at the, not at the consumer level, at the utility level, figuring out how to incentivize, not cut the box top and mail it in, but upfront in the store rebate so that they, but it's still, this is the thing that blows my mind and many listeners probably already understand, but like that utility is still guessing. They're working off of a very vague smoke and mirrors heuristics. They're saying, okay, Five million uh, LED light bulbs went into this marketplace. We know that those you those consumers, on average, used a 60 watt, and now they're using a 14 watt. And we do the delta on that. And the average hours that we know across our entire user base is X. So we assume the reduction in load is now Y, and we're going to claim all those credits, right? I mean, this is the, this is the industry working. So, McGee, you you have, a, you have a tremendous background in trying to build products that. Uh, that addressed this need in the marketplace. But I want to kind of take a step back for a second. Thinking about as an entrepreneur building this business, what needed to be true for this business to work now, right? If timing is everything for businesses, like if you started this business five, 10, 15 years ago, why would you have failed?
1: I did try to start this business 10 years ago. and <laughs> did totally fail. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, when I did Meter Hero, at uh, you know, yeah, it was 10 years ago. Uh, we didn't really have, well, first things first, I didn't know how to do measurement and verification. So that uh-huh. was, you know, we were just kind of guessing as the best way to try to calculate savings. Um, it wouldn't have been very impressive to anybody the way we were doing it back then. But also we didn't really have access to smart meter data. Uh, we didn't have companies like Utility API uh, uh-huh. who had plugged into all of these utilities, making it easy to, I mean, it was Daniel, in his basement, uh, at the, you know, <laughs> at that point in time. So, so we were in early days there, um, and uh, from a market standpoint, uh, there was a you know a sort of a blip of what we would call corporate social responsibility back then, um, but not really the sort of same level of engagement around you know climate-oriented solutions that you have today. And and so I think the things that have to be true right now is that we realize that you know, the the preeminent challenge of our time is figuring out how to build towards a clean energy future. Now we have the tools that we need to be able to do that. Uh, we can we can run the measurement verification in a way that gives people confidence that the savings are materializing the way they expect. And uh, we have market mechanisms that we can open up now to, to scale the injection of capital um, into these projects. So I think all of those things now make this the right time uh, to try to build a company like this.
0: So, we're going to unpack a bit the technology, how you go about it, how you think about it, as well as uh, even step back into kind of some of the sort of the inception ideas and some of the work that you did before. Before we do that, I'd love to pique folks' interest with some of the accomplishments and milestones you have raised capital. You announced in January four and a half million that you raised into the business. That was a um, Seed Round, as I recall, mm-hmm. yep. with led by True Ventures. Um, and you uh, also finally kind of came out of Stealth about a year ago, like last summer, just sort of talking about how you are providing hourly carbon emissions for every building in the U.S., so that you have the capacity to do that. One of the things that sticks out in that post- is that in partnership with Utility API, which you just mentioned, um, thank you Devin for connecting us by the way, it was from that episode that I met McGee and I didn't realize this until recently, Singularity Energy, Wimbo She, who's also an alumnus of the Suncast family. Can you talk about those, uh, those milestones and perhaps one or two more that for you represent sort of the, um, the market validation of what you've been trying to build for the last some, several years?
1: to be honest I think some of those milestones reflect market invalidation (laughs) okay (laughs) which is an important part of the process you know because when you start a company and you you're in this world like when we the company's about two years old now when we started you know Watershed and Persephone were barely getting off the ground and then they went and raised 100 million dollar rounds within you know six months of launching or whatever Mm -hmm. you know the ecosystem changed you know in ways that were almost like unfathomable in the first year that we that we existed um and so we didn't really know where the point of traction would be right and we also didn't know what we were capable of building or capable of doing so i had this idea that what if we could build something that looked like measurement and verification based on emissions reductions and could we build a market around right a lot of this stuff was kind of very and frankly like pretty intimidating you know and 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 as an entrepreneur you're you're kind of like well if there's an easier thing that we can do you know like that's like you know just as you know impactful like do the easy thing before you can before you do maybe the the hard or the impossible thing yeah uh, but yeah you know, it was it was pretty obvious to me pretty quickly that a lot of the again it's sort of like that that duality that i that i referenced earlier between the sort of like interpreting, you know, the world and, and changing the world, like right, ch- committing yourself to trying to change the world is a really, really big step. And, and it's also a little bit, you know, daunting to try to, you know, go talk to investors about, Hey, like, uh, you know, like bookmarks and go change the world is not exactly like bringing the investor dollars. It's like, I'm going to build a, you know, a solid SaaS business and here's my recurring revenue and blah, blah, blah. So I think we were trying to feel out like what the right match was between we were we we're trying to find what what people call message market fit mm-hmm. uh, what is the story that you're telling and is it resonating you know with a large enough group including potential investors but as we got into things more and, and i started to work with Wimbo, um and that was really useful because he was a little bit ahead of us in terms of being able to pull in all of the grid data so we could start to play around with like was this even possible like we didn't know you know at the time like if we could even start to measure hourly carbon emissions intensity you know at the at the building level and match it up with the balancing authority that it was mm-hmm. that it belonged to pulling in, not you know not working with utilities was a big you know kind of decision and so that meant utility api was going to be our pathway to be able to get you know the actual data in from from buildings so we built this kind of core capacity to be able to do this. And, we, and, and, and then it was like this realization that, that actually the market, most, most folks for whom this would be valuable information about their own buildings, about their own emissions, were like, uh, no thanks. They're like, we're good. Uh, we have an annual number that we report that is safe and uh, nobody questions yeah and you're asking us to to kind of go into this hourly stuff all that's going to do is raise questions around like what have we been reporting to date and then you know there's some ambiguity around the emissions factors that you might use for for hourly if you're going to use this marginal emissions number that that watt time you know still promotes or 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 go in the direction that is going and use um, what would be called like an average emissions value, mm-hmm. and so the the thing that kept coming back to me was like, why am I doing this? Like, mm-hmm. why am I starting a company and going through all this? And and at the end of the day, it was like this kind of moral commitment to go out and and try to make a positive change in the world. And and so that kind of just drew me. Like, I didn't really have any other guiding light other than like the people who you know I thought might want this information were sort of like ho hum on it. And so I was like, well you know, who wants this, you know, in the world is is me. Like, I feel like the world needs to have the capacity to democratize, you know, energy decarbonization. And I'm going to just go build that. And if I fail or nobody wants it, like I will have at least gone and done the thing that I wanted to do in the world. And, and that's, you know, kind of how we ended up where we are today.
0: I will point folks to the, um, what we've been building article, because I think it really, it does a balanced and fair, explanation of the sort of the ecosystem within which you decide to make uh decisions for and against business progress right like what we are building and what we're not building who we say we are and who we say we're not as an entrepreneur i would encourage you if you're listening really go think through uh like using this what we've been building article that i'll link to as a framework think through the message that you are sending to the market and specifically, this message market fit is a really important concept of whether or not you are working on the more complex thing or the more easily de- deployable thing right now, <laughs> and um, and what, you know how that is going to impact your ability to stay alive, raise a round of funding, find customers, versus just solving your own like your own intellectual curiosity that I can do this, I can solve this problem. And you're going to hear some of the, the anecdotes from McGee of having done the former and now doing the latter. And I, I could quote all day because I think that you are a really smart writer. And I think that this document was really written, written well. Like, our goal is to provide data infrastructure that joins what is actually happening on the grid to what is actually happening in the built environment. What did the lead investor for your seed round invest in? Like, what if I were to sit with them, what are they seeing and what carbon that they, that they, want to put, place a bet with you and and choose this horse in the race
1: Priscilla Tyler is the the point person at, at true ventures and I I asked her about this you know after we closed the round I was like mm. um, you're insane right you realize that, you know like you just put up four and a half million dollars into this you know crazy company and she's like yep um but what was interesting about the process was that we um we started to think about raising a seed round. We had raised one and a half million dollars in a pre-seed back in uh, a year and a half ago. And so as we were thinking about the seed round, um, I was initially kind of trying to pitch it as, you know, sort of like this data infrastructure, you know, for the built environment and sort of talking about, you know, where we thought that business would go. And, and it was, you know, there was a level at which I was trying to sell it, but a level at which I didn't really believe it. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, you know, one of the lessons that, and I had, you know, we had some differing, one of my co-founders like was pushing hard on, on that story. And, and I was, you know, we were sort of not aligned internally as a, as a team. Um, yeah. and, and, um, uh, we eventually, you know, I said, you know what, like, that's just not doing it for me. Like I'm not selling it very well. I don't really believe in it. And the answer that I have is like kind of crazy. It's like, hey, actually, I want to go see if we can build a market around this, and like, mm. I think there's a path here to, you know, creating not just like the data infrastructure, but the next layer on top of it. Mm. And so, I uh, one of my early uh, early investors was uh, is a guy named Tommy Leap uh, who yeah. runs a fund called Jetstream. Yeah, we interviewed Tommy on
0: Climate. Oh. Go listen to that episode. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Tommy's amazing um, for many reasons, but one is it was uh, his willingness to sit with me over the course of the summer and help me refine my pitch. And we went through the slide deck and and um, tore it apart, put it back together over and over again until it started to resonate with me personally a little mm. bit more. And he forced me to say like, no, Mickey, like what is the story that you want to tell? Mm. And I was terrified to actually tell it because it was, it seemed crazy. It seemed like, you know, it's like the thing. It's like you're the most vulnerable. You know, like when you're saying the idea that you know is really the one that you have inside of you. Because if that's wrong, then you yeah. know, then then like you know, then you're exposed for the fraud that you probably think that you are. You know, most of the time. And and so, <laughs> uh, but he pulled it out of me. And so when I when I started, you know, talking with folks about that, some of them were you know immediately like that, eh, not for us. But uh, but the folks at True Ventures were like, oh that's interesting. That's different. That's something that we haven't heard anybody say before. Tell us more about that. And, and tell us more about how you might want to build, you know, sort of a new type of company in this space and Mm. be, you know, kind of genuinely, you know, an authentic, you know, alternative to what exists today. And, and they didn't invest necessarily in that idea as it had, cohered at that point right it was still fairly like amorphous but they said we like this we want to invest in an entrepreneur who is trying to think big and think creatively and uh, so we trust you to go out and spend the next couple of years of your life working as hard as you possibly can to bring that to life and we want to be there for you um, as that becomes successful and I think that was the you know the thing I said I said I said um you know that that I'm going to probably do things a little differently than than other companies that you know might be around, and they're like, "We hope so."
0: Now I want to meet Priscilla.
1: Yeah, she's she's amazing. The whole team there has has been um, remarkable. So we feel really fortunate to be working with them.
0: How did you know it was time to raise that that first pre-seed, one and a half million? How million? How'd you come up with that number? I had been
1: doing some some uh, so after I had left Recurve. Um, I did some consulting work and. I had done that for about three months and realized that, um, I just hated it. And, and I just wanted to, I like felt like I needed to go out and try to do my own company again. And I felt like I had some, some things that I could work on and, but we needed to, you know, I don't have like a war chest of, of mm-hmm. a, a former exit or something that I can, that I have like money laying around that I don't have to work. Right. right? And so, um, but I learned from when I, had done my previous company where i i split time for a while with my academic job and trying to start a company at the same time that when you're doing two things at the same time like that it rarely ever works uh so um i said we're gonna just go into this and go raise some money pay ourselves you know from the get-go and that's our burn it's like our our ability to pay us you know to, to keep the the lights on in our own houses as Love like the, the the pressure and we were we met adam Bezvinick uh who runs a, a early stage fund called looking glass capital and he wrote the first check into our pre-seed and kind of kicked the two things off and he introduced us to tommy and then tommy introduced us to and dwayne at village global um and that was those three checks you know kind of were most of the money that came into our our pre-seed rounded that's amazing we were just we didn't have a, like a firm target of one and a half. It just it kind of that's what it know, came out of. That felt like a, the, the right amount.
0: Hmm. I'll circle back in a minute to how you found true ventures because I think that's a piece of the story. So before that, you know, one of the things that you said stood out to me, uh, I think this is this is one of the reasons why Devin wanted us to meet for sure, and that is that they were investing in you. They want an entrepreneur who thinks this way and they trust that you will find a path. And so something I say to folks all the time, it's a misnomer to think that people invest in business plans. They don't. They invest in the people pitching the business plan. Investors would much uh, rather invest in a startup founder who's failed a couple of times, but who has met their commitments than a new startup that seems to have a fantastic pitch deck and a greatly you know, well-groomed, uh, team of Harvard MBAs with no experience actually raising money and deploying it. Where'd you grow up? I was born in in uh, Carmel, California. No way! My, I didn't know that.
1: My parents were hippies. Uh, we lived in the mountains. Um, lived in Carmel Valley or Carmel up Valley, yeah. yeah, up in the hills there. Yeah. Wow!
0: Did you know? We so, didn't talk about this. I lived in. Uh, I went to the Monterey Institute and uh, lived in Seaside okay. for a long time.
1: We li- we lived there till I was six. Um, relocated to Southern Oregon, uh, mm-hmm. out, outside of Medford, uh, Central it wasn't Point. wasn't hippie
0: enough for you? We
1: live we live b- between Central Point and in Grants Pass, if, <laughs> which yeah. is uh, also kind of the middle of nowhere. Uh, till I was twelve, and then uh, moved to Pensacola, Florida, uh, where I went to high school. My my mom had grown up there, and her mom had gotten sick she Mm had worked for monsanto all of her life and got cancer your grandma and and uh, yeah so we moved back to help take care Mm -hmm. of her
0: was it a close-knit family growing up
1: it was you know i have two younger sisters um i would say that our family struggled uh Mm -hmm. we were um you know desperately poor for many years Mm -hmm. um my dad uh who passed away a couple years ago was an alcoholic and um you know like the Oregon years were were tough for us they were you know he was more or less employed at, at the gas station and and uh, and worked as it was also the mid eighties uh, so it's the uh, economic you know everybody was unemployed at the time we were you know on on food stamps and and all the rest uh so I think in some ways you know that like tour you know I mean, my parents you know really struggled with that um the kids. In a way, it's it's, somewhat brings you together, somewhat, you know, brings trauma. Yeah. Um, And so I think we learned a lot about how to, you know, overcome adversity and, and, you know, like, and and just sort of like figure out how to get by (laughs) um, in a, in a time in which um, that was a real skill. Um, And, and so as I get, you know, farther along in my life, I look back at those times and, you know, get kind of a sense of, of resilience, like nothing really phases me anymore, mm. uh, from, from having gone through a lot of that as, as a little kid, I think that there's, you know, I read Jerry Colonna's book a few years ago, um, uh, what's it called? I have to look it up. Um, uh, but it resonated with me where a lot of the, you know, kind of anxieties that you have as an adult, um, are born out of the traumatic experiences you have as a kid, and so I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it just kind of be, makes me who I am today.
0: Yeah. I mean, talk about uh, tying it back to the, fr- the beginning of the interview and, uh, and good trees, right? Like, actually, stress is a necessary part of, um, of resilience, building that good timber that we talked about. Um, you've clearly had some strong winds in your <laughs> life. Uh, tell me about the influence that. Your grandmother's sickness in particular induced by you know working at Monsanto, lots of folks have um, particular opinions about Monsanto and how that ultimately planted the seeds of early sort of advocacy for you uh, to put it mildly I
1: think it it, it had a, a pretty profound impact on my mom who um, was the more um, sort of environmental activist um, of my parents and she started a a, a newspaper. Uh, the first ever, you know, probably only uh, statewide environmental newspaper in Florida uh, called the Pro Earth Times, mm-hmm. and it was uh, you know me and my sisters would help. Uh, I was the you know when I got my license, I would deliver it to all the you know little coffee shops and grocery stores, you know the 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 uh, natural food stores and the university bookstore, whoever whoever else would take you know copies of it, and uh, we'd have you know meetings and you know go sit in on county commissioner meetings and and um and i'd see them just struggle right to, like there's this pain that's at the root of a lot of um activism that you know somebody's um, kids have gotten sick or somebody's parents have gotten sick or somebody has gotten sick there's a personalness to it and um, and yet you know they're so under un- under um armed for Mm -hmm. the the world in which you have to go out and and participate in the stuff you think about like somebody like aaron brockovich right who's you know kind of famous for that but um but all of the ways in which the system is kind of arrayed to prevent people from going out and having an impact and so they did just like this sort of like banging your head against the wall and, and that I think I wanted to understand that better. Uh, so when I went to college, I studied, you know, environmental, you know, politics and went and got a PhD in, you know, interest group mobilization and, and wrote a book on the foundings of uh, the Sierra Club and NRDC. And I looked at other types of organizations that were differently successful in different, you know, policy areas and really tried to understand like, there's a few that break through. There's a few that become successful and they do something special. They do something different. And that has a huge impact on the way policy gets made. And so I wanted to understand that and, and then to be able to act upon that and to take the knowledge from, from those you know, earlier generations, the things that had gone right, the things that they had done well, and see if we could you know, again, bridge that gap with technology to empower the next generation to come along and have a bit more of an impact than, you know, I saw when I was
0: growing up. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like higher Energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on SunCast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void but there's still people who don't even know about suncast i know i can hardly believe it myself (laughs) but that's where you can help me yet again there's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show if you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. I think it's rare in our industry. It's increasingly rare now um with folks seeing how how much opportunity there is <laughs> you and I jumped in uh to this industry long before there was the uh, the opportunity that we currently enjoy. It's it's getting becoming more rare to see people that actually have like all their lives had a mission and a clear uh, understanding of the environmental impact and and the levers that move that move the needle really, that, that change the narrative as well. I'm sure that you'd probably count your mother in this group, but are there any personal heroes growing up that you look to that particularly influenced the path that you feel like you've taken?
1: I I had a, I had a college advisor who helped me understand this, this sort of duality a little bit where I, I had, um, and, and sort of like understanding the world or changing the world and and mm. i had almost failed out of college i went to to new college in florida which didn't have grades um a bunch of yeah. kind of free thinkers and ronda Santos is trying to shut it down right now um uh, because you know free thinking and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, but uh but I, he you know he called me into his office after i had like failed all my classes once in the sophomore year because i was out protesting you know I'd organized the environmental club on campus and we were like organizing protests and everything. And wow. I was not doing any of my work. And he said, look, Fingy, there's, there's two sides of you. There's the academic side and the, and the safe to the world side, and you can't do both at the same time very well. Mm. So you got to figure out like, which one is it going to be? And, uh, you're going to be better off getting out of here, um, with a good academic, you know, back, you know, degree. Um, uh, and then you'll be able to go do, you know, whatever you want. Um, but if you choose, you know, the sort of save the world path right now, it's probably going to short circuit a lot of things that you might do in the future. And uh, and he was and he was right, and that had a you know pretty big impact on me, kind of veering off into the the academic side of things uh, for a while. But always with that idea that there's a freedom there to kind of circle back uh, when the time <laughs> felt right and to to jump into that other other side. Mm-hmm.
0: So you ended up in new york california turned florida kid barely graduated uh school um or struggled through the first two years uh what took you to syracuse and ultimately a phd in political science Uh, one way that i usually phrase this is what career path did you not go down but always thought you would
1: (laughs) (laughs) that one was definitely not on anybody's you know like bingo card list for for mcgee i mean it was it was you know 19 1996, um, mm. we were, you know, I was, I didn't know how to get out of Florida um, any other way than to go to grad school. I didn't really, law school didn't appeal to me, and and I didn't, I was fascinated by what was happening in California at the time. We got the NCSA Mosaic browser, you know, the Internet, mm-hmm. Netscape, uh, the, you know, while I was in college, and uh, but that was too far. me to jump like I didn't know how to how to like get into that world and um, and I had you know a pathway through academia that was you know kind of a way out of of um, of Florida and kind of working towards whatever my future might be yeah and Syracuse um, was where my dad had grown up and we had some family there so I applied to to their grad program and I applied to Syracuse and Cornell and then two schools in, in California UCLA and UC San Diego and Syracuse let me in. I was, I think I was the last, the last person that they let in that year. They didn't give me any funding or any, you know, they just sort of said, well, show up. If you do okay, you might, you know, we might let you stay. And so, you know, I somehow convinced them to not, you know, kick me out for long enough until, you know, I finished and, and got the PhD.
0: Now, if I'm doing math right, um, having graduated myself in ninety seven and uh being a fan of the Philadelphia Eagles, that would put you at Syracuse at the same time as Donovan McNabb.
1: Some of my favorite memories were uh, I played basketball recreationally. And, no way. Uh, he would come down to the gym for pickup basketball games, and we're both six foot three, and I would end up guarding him.
0: What? Wait, you guarded Donovan McNabb in pickup games it's in no college?
1: And, uh, and, well, I was, you know, of course, a grad student, and he was the, like the thing about him that I remember was he had calves, like his calves were like the size of like my shoulders. And, and then he would just jump like straight up over me. <laughs> like I, and he was so strong. I was like helpless before this, like beast of a man. And, uh, and I think he it was like, I wasn't even there, you know, for, uh, <laughs> for, for the most part, um, but yeah that was uh that was a fun time to be able to you know to to be at syracuse and and to have some of those types of encounters Mm -hmm. Um, and that was probably the most famous person well when i was growing up in florida uh, i played pickup basketball games with the boxer roy jones jr Mm, um, no way um yeah would come down and play pickup basketball games with us down there so those are my two claims to fame on that front
0: (laughs) yeah amazing so most folks go to academia not to pursue uh, business venture, but to be professors. I mean, I, Wimbo and I had a great laugh about his family all being in the power sector. And he said, I'll never be in the power sector and, and ended up getting a PhD and, uh, in, in 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 energy and, and focusing on that. I, I don't see a straight line from political science to energy. Could you walk me through that, including... Uh, what ultimately was uh more than a decade of academia
1: yeah the the energy side was um you know i had when I was kind of starting to work on some of this stuff um it was really the the um the water side that you know kind of was my entree point into entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and yeah. Milwaukee was building out its its a uh, kind of water technology cluster uh the milwaukee water council uh was had been formed and um, as I had been starting to do social entrepreneurship um activities in my classes at Marquette, I had I had helped start a social entrepreneurship program at Marquette and uh was incorporating some of that into my classes. So we were like basically using the class time to start companies and learn stuff. Nice. And so um one of those, so they would be kind of all over the place, you know, but one of them was a company that like we figured out how to do. Uh, that that water utility records because they're municipal agencies uh, would be public record so you could do a freedom of information act request for anybody's water utility records like how much water they're using and so water utilities are infamous for providing really bad bills like Mm -hmm. bad like um information so you get billed in like hundreds of cubic feet Mm -hmm. which nobody understands right And, and so like conservation is like you're like i don't even know what's what and so we built so one of my projects was called H Two O Score, mm-hmm. and uh, we built software that um, essentially would take the raw data from a utility and turn it into like a really slick customer interface, so you could just type in your address and figure out how much water you're using, how it compared to your neighbors, kind of like O Power, yeah, um, but for water.
0: But for water.
1: And we just did freedom of. Inf- so I was teaching my students how to do freedom of, of information act requests, and so we just submit these requests to water. You t- There's you know, Fifty thousand water utilities in the U.S. And we just were cranking out FOIA requests to utility yeah. after utility, and um, until eventually we got shut down uh, by uh, we got a you know cease and desist from the attorney general of Texas, and the state of Wisconsin changed its law around public records for water data and there was this whole like. But that was like the entry point, and and then. And so, from them, it became you. We were sort of like figuring out how to how to do data, and and energy was sort of a natural, you know, like corollary uh, yeah. to that. And so, the measurement and verification, you know, kind of came along later when it was really about the sort of figuring out how to like empower people to make smarter choices um, using data that was otherwise like kind of not available uh, to them. Uh, it sort of underlines, you know, like what we're doing with Watt Carbon and taking the grid carbon emissions data that is out there that anybody can get access to and Winbow gets like, we get it directly from EIA now and it's, a but it's complicated. Right. And and it's inaccessible to people for the most part. And so like just being able to sort of like take the public record as it were and turn it into a tool for, you know, like activists, uh, you know, however broadly you want to kind of describe that uh, became kind of part and parcel of the way that I thought about entrepreneurship.
0: So let's take a, um, Let's take a slightly detour here because anytime I meet a subject matter expert and I, and I can learn from them, I try to implement that as quickly as possible. Could you do two things? One, identify where people are underutilizing FOIA requests in the energy sector right now. Solar, let's apply it to solar. And then two, give me like the three to five minute version of how to submit a FOIA request to solve that problem or to to, re- to get that information
1: well i think utility api has sort of like figured out the energy data side for, mm-hmm. for the most part um which is you know kind of using customer login credentials to you know to give them access to data that they should um, already get i i think in fact one of the things that's really interesting about this kind of rise of ai is that there's already there's so much data out there you don't need a FOIA request for mm-hmm. it it's just out there but it's almost impossible to like sort sort through, right? You have all of these records from, you know, county commission meetings, city council meetings, reports that that are published in PDF form, right? That contain massive amounts of information in them, but it's just too much for people to sift through and to like make sense of. And so I think, you know, what I'm excited about, like we don't really do any of this in my company, but if I was going to do another company, you know, I would go out and I would like organize the world's information, decarbonization information. Like it's all there's so much out there and you could get so much uh, out of being able to just process through the troves and troves of information that's that's published mostly at a local level uh, by, you know, city, sometimes state governments. And I think that that would unlock a whole world of opportunity because you kind of start to see where some of these patterns are and and that sort of thing. So it's not necessarily about about the FOIA part as much as like, how do you how do you go out and and access this information that's that's available
0: to you? I mean, that's where that's how most businesses are being built right now. Where are the data gaps and how can I uh, solve the access to information and then leverage that new information to make decisions, smarter decisions, faster decisions?
1: Totally. I think it was. Paul Graham, who said uh, at one point, like, your goal as a, as a, if you're starting a company is to try to find a non-obvious problem. And if the people who can find those are going to be the ones that really, um, do something special, uh, because they're going to get, they'll have some, some, some secrets that other Con- people aren't going to have that are really going to uh, open up opportunities.
0: Concur. There's a book called non-obvious. Um, that- <laughs> yeah, <sure>. nah, <laughs> that, was the obvious book to write. Um, <laughs> So, I'm uh I'm gonna I'm gonna guess here because you and I haven't discussed it directly, but that the idea that you referred to earlier, you said I started Meter Hero ten years too early back when I asked you kind of what was what what is available now. Sort of extrapolating, putting two, two, two and two together here, Meter Hero was meant to pay people to save water and energy. Um, the data was ver- verified through utility accounts. Um, there were fund um, rebates to offset um basically pay savers of energy and water when they reduce their usage did you leave marquette to start meter hero is that how that worked i started it while i was at Marquette, Uh and
1: then left um while i was running it um yeah
0: why oakland
1: we didn't want to be in milwaukee anymore (laughs) and (laughs) uh uh, we you know this is the this is the epicenter of where you know people go who want to do things and. we had had family out here too. So both my wife and I had my sisters. my sisters were both out here and, and her family, family is decision. out here. Yeah. And so we thought, you know, let's go, let's go for it. We sold our house in Milwaukee, got a yeah. little tiny apartment here and, you know, made it work.
0: Yeah. Well, fortuitous because probably from Milwaukee, you wouldn't have found, uh, open energy. And what now most people kind of know you for, which is having been the chief technology officer for recurve. Two things I'd like to learn. One, How did you find and then sort of work your way from head of product to CTO at um, Open Energy Efficiency, which became uh, Recurve? And then the follow question to that, which you may want to weave into the overarching story is talk to me about open source and your philosophy around open access and data.
1: So I I joined um, Open Energy Efficiency, EE, as their first employee. Um, and I had gotten to know Matt Golden a little bit, um, while I was doing meter hero and we, he was sort of telling me I was doing V wrong and he was right. Doing what? wrong? Was, me- measurement and verification. Okay. Um, yeah. And so after I had, I had sh- shut down meter hero, I, you know, I called him up and I said, Hey, let's, let's chat about that some more. And, and, you know, so eventually uh, I joined and he had had a co-founder, a guy named Matt Gee. Mm-hmm. We had. Matt Gee, Matt G and McGee uh, <laughs> it was a good opener. Um,
0: Works. And Walks, I, walked into a bar was the rest of the sentence. Uh, exactly.
1: And, and so um, Matt Gee had been the founding CTO and brilliant guy. And he taught me uh, basically about the world of measurement and verification. Mm-hmm. And um, he, was, uh, he was running a, a methods development group uh, called CalTrack. And after he left the company, we needed somebody to step in and take his place running running Caltrek, And it kind of looked better to have, you know, somebody named CTO running it than somebody called head of products yeah. running it. And I was probably the worst qualified CTO, um, you know, <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> but... Uh, but the work that we were doing was, you know, it was, it was really interesting because it was a lot of, you know, the kind of same data science that we did as uh, social scientists, you know, we were running regression equations, I, had, I wasn't, you know, a, a super sophisticated with, um, you know, with data science, in terms of my academic work, but I had had some coursework on it. So I kind of knew what it was, and it's not all that complicated. And so the a lot of it also is just sort of the politics of building consensus around a way in which we might agree to do this measurement. And so I just, you know, kind of stepped into that role. And I had been leading in my own engineering teams, you know, my first, you know, companies. And so I had some experience with that. Um, and my philosophy on that is hire good people and get the heck out of their way. So, you know, there's there's not too much, you know, technical expertise that's required to do that. And um, it became a really good fit, you know, for me to be able to kind of lead, you know, that technical work around, you know, defining, creating new methods. We, you know, eventually developed hourly you know, methodologies for calculating savings, and uh, beyond that, um, being able to control for effects like COVID, you know, on you know energy use patterns and and how to you know solve for some of those you know trickier structural issues. And and that of course led me into open source, right, which mm-hmm. I had. My um, original project, the H2O score, uh, we had uh, my co-founder with that um, was a big open source aficionado or, or mm-hmm. contributor. Actually, um, Drupal was the open source project. That's sort of a a, a, a long a long way back, but
0: yeah, might That's might still be so cool. around today. Yeah. yeah,
1: and so I had kind of known about it right from from that experience. But when we were when we did open source at, at Recurve, it was really you know in a lot of ways about the methodology as much as it was the code and so Mm -hmm. we wanted you know a system of what we call a system of weights and measures that everybody agreed upon there wasn't like a black box where you get you know some sort of measurement and you say here's here's how much you saved but we can't tell you how we got that number because it's a secret right and and that to me is sort of exactly um is one of the most like important characteristics of like our industry, there's basically two types of companies. (laughs) There are those who say, we have a black box and we're not going to tell you the answer. Mm. And those who say, Hey, this is available for everybody to use and to leverage. And, um, you know, kind of a a consensus built around how you do something is way better than trying Mm. to create your, the irony of that other approaches that it tries to recreate the very same utilities, you know, business, you know, monopoly business model yeah. that got us here in the first place.
0: Right? Yeah. Uh, oh, man.
1: So, so I, I eventually um, became pretty uh, connected with LF Energy, which is the Linux Foundations Energy Project. And then when I started Watt Carbon, I, you know, started a new project within LF Energy called the Carbon Data Specification Consortium. Uh, that was going to try to, that we're still working on uh, trying to create similar kind of consensus methods around how to do carbon accounting using hourly grid data, the, the work that window, you know, w- yeah. would, would contribute to. Um, so that Massive. when you say, Hey, what were your emissions or, you know, what, how much emissions did you save? It wasn't like, well, depends on who you asked.
0: Yeah. Like, that's the worst depends, possible answer. Depends right? on how you calculate it. No. Yes. It doesn't. There's a standard for that. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. Man, I mean, I, I would argue that the work you've done for the last 15 years perfectly positions you to be uh, obviously building wide carbon and, and to be the CEO of such a company. But it's yeoman's work. It is the kind of thing and the kind of work that a entrepreneur minded academic would get drawn into. Right it's not a surprise having met you and Wimbo that you're both working on very similar problems. It's like um you know you're both like uh what's the word um nerdy n- Well there's no doubt about that. <laughs> no I'm I'm thinking of a separate uh thing altogether like um uh, ministers in the uh, like our equivalent of like the Baha'i faith. Like we're all touching the same thing and, and saying it in different things <laughs> in different ways, right? And you guys are trying to be like standing in the middle going, guys, really like we're talking about an elephant. You're touching the toenail and he's touching the tusk. They're hard <laughs> ones like you feel it in different ways. Pro- probably a weird and bad analogy, but it, I think that this, there's something in the in the understanding of the motivation behind open source that frankly, a lot of folks in the VC community, a lot of folks in the uh, entrepreneurial community, don't—they've not tried to understand—and they really see it like they look at, at Elon Musk open sourcing it plans and code and say, and scratching their head and saying, "Why would he ever do that?" Right? Do you when you see that kind of activity from Elon, does it just like click with you? Does it? We don't—we don't have to get into like your philosophy on yeah. Elon, but I'm just help me understand why like what areas we could open source and should about the business right now like i'm a no block no black box kind of guy like i say on suncast in the intro we pull back the veil that's the equivalent of like opening the black box right
1: there's a economist named paul Romer, who won a nobel prize a few years ago he wrote an article in uh roughly 1990 on a uh, roughly the concept of path dependency and increasing returns. So the idea is, it, when we when we in our industry, we typically talk about network effects. So how you know, if each additional user, your network becomes more valuable um, because there's more of them. Like we saw this with threads, you know, launching. Yeah. What we see 100 million users in, in the first couple of days. Faster than ChatGPT. <laughs> now. Why is that network effect important? Um, it's because there's a public good that's being created. It's becoming more valuable for everybody. But in the creation of that public good, you're also capturing some private value mm-hmm. from it. Yeah. Right? Like you like meta has, you know, threads is becoming is more valuable, you know, because of all these people being, you know, joining it. Even yeah. though each one of them also benefits. And so you have this, this kind of like spillover effect of a public good being created out of the pursuit of private interest. And what Paul Romer wanted to know is like, how common is that? Like, is that a thing? And, and, he, and he concludes that, in fact, that's how we explain economic growth is that people pursuing their own private self interest, which is they create knowledge. And they, they, they invent things and they do, you know, they, they start companies and they have this knowledge that, that gets built up as a result of the work that they've done. And then the rest of the world benefits from it. But because they themselves can, um, that is the learning by doing. Uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Arrow has this concept of like, by just the fact that you're the one doing it, you have knowledge that nobody else has. That's where the value creation happens. And then everybody else using it just makes that value much more for you uh, because you've now given this given this to the world. And so I think, you know, like there's two types of entrepreneurs. There's the people who like create knowledge, who really do something, you know, and, and I think, you know, to the extent that Tesla has, you know, actually like built some really foundational technologies, like they, nobody else can replicate that. No, no company coming along, you know, trying to, to match them because because that only happens once and you now have that that dna as as part of your company of like we know how to build this stuff and then and then you license it because you want everybody else to use the outcome of that knowledge but but they'll never have the thing that you have which which is that you know original work that went into producing it so when i look at the work that we do and the work that you know my my team has done to sort of like figure out how to build all of the things that you know we've had to build to make this a reality. Nobody can take away from us that knowledge that we've built yes. in solving these problems. Right, the conversations we've had to have to say, well, what about this? What about this?
0: Man, I love that.
1: even as we we release all those secrets out into the world. Um, that's fine because secrets. the world's gonna yeah they're they're gonna benefit uh, from this. But that but them knowing it um, only makes what we've built more valuable.
0: I can't wait for folks to hear this. I can't wait for Karim uh, to listen to it. He's going to smile from ear to ear. Um, so I'm going to bring some bring some folks back down to, to ground here for a minute. Paul Romer, Nobel Prize for what he termed endogenous growth theory. I'm going to link. Have you read this article from London School of Economics, the Nobel uh, for Economics 2018, A Question of Imbalance, where he says... Where Dimitri Zinglis explains why Paul Romer's theory of endogenous growth can be harnessed to direct and design a net carbon future, net zero carbon future. Have you read this? Uh Uh Dude, uh, my mind is blown. This is written in 2019. (laughs) I'm like trying, I'm listening to you. I'm also like making sure I'm understanding what Paul Paul Romer's theory is. I found the the JSTOR of increasing returns, path dependence, and the study of politics. Found it again (laughs) on Cambridge, like... I'm going down a deep rabbit hole here but Paul Rom- Paul Romer uh, is an American economist and it was awarded 2018 Nobel Prize for economics for understanding long-term economic growth and its relation to technological innovation. I'll leave it at that and I'll leave you some links to nerd out cuz you guys are going to want to nerd out just like uh, I just did and like McGee clearly has done. You mean you're one of the smartest people I've had on the show in a long time. Maybe so <laughs> uh, maybe in the maybe it, you're up in the realm for sure of Wimbo and I'm just geeking out myself listening to this. So you uh, man, uh this interview is gonna is gonna go way longer than uh, most folks are are willing to listen we, around. We've lost
1: most of the audience at this point, Nico. It's just you and me and the two are our, our, our friends and family
0: at this well, point. I'm telling I'm telling you, the 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 hardcore folks are being rewarded the way just truly, if you haven't listened to it, go listen to Winbo's episode as well. The way they were rewarded. In Wimbo's episode when he really stopped to draw started to drop some value bombs. Um, but tell me, how did you know that it was time to start white carbon? Right? You need you like you've had all this experience. Ten years ago you failed. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing, expecting a different result.
1: I didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing that tells you this is the time or this is the thing that you should do. In fact. Mm -hmm it's completely the irrational thing to do. It's like, it's the farthest thing from, you know, like if you feel like you're, you need to be rationally justifying entrepreneur, like if you feel like you can rationally justify starting a company and like going down this path, like you've like, you're delusional. Uh, So um, in fact, everything was saying just go get a job there's plenty of companies that will hire you there's plenty of like yeah. good opportunities in a space like 100%. the world doesn't really doesn't need another you know company maybe you know I, I like i gave up tenure you know at a at a university yeah. uh yeah. to go do this and i felt like i had unfinished business it's probably like hubris at some level to think well, this time, you know, it's, it's going to be different, or this time I'm going to like, I, I've learned a bunch of things along the way. And, and um, but uh, it's the only thing in my life that I haven't like gotten to the point where I feel satisfied mm-hmm. with the outcome. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was like, I got to just do this, or I will never be able to live with myself.
0: Yes. This is the thing that you would regret on your deathbed, right? You'd look back and say, I should have done that, right? Mm-hmm. Like me starting a mm-hmm. podcast network, which I was deathly mm-hmm. afraid of. <laughs> totally, I can tell totally. you. It's, I told somebody uh, recently, like, <laughs> if I, if you had told me eight years ago how hard this was going to be, there's no effing way I would have done what I've done. There's no way. I, it was, Imagine just, if
1: you knew how hard, like, if oh. you already knew how hard it was going to be, and yet you still decided. To, so.
0: Oh God, yeah. Um, that's right. Yeah. So even more kudos for you because you knew how it was. You've already failed this once. With that in mind, what assumptions do you feel like you had to challenge in the first year or two of starting the business?
1: I tend to think that more more people are farther along in in their thinking mm. on this stuff and is probably true like i i tend to sort of assume that if i've read something or if i know something like somebody else probably already knows that or has probably already read that or probably already like and i'm i sort of had this like inner fear of like you know i'm always feel like i'm playing catch up and yeah. then and then no i realize no
0: special knowledge
1: yeah, and then I, and then I realized that like, oh, wait a minute, like not everybody's thinking about this stuff yet. Right. In the same, the same way or the mm-hmm. same, like, like I'll go down this deep rabbit hole and be like, oh, okay. So that's how like the grid works. You know, like right. I just had no idea how like balancing authorities, you know, like, you know, window explained all that stuff to me, you know, when we first met, he's like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And I'm like, I know.
0: <laughs> so good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, the, but then you you get ahead of, of, of people, right? And you got to slow it down and be like, okay, your quest to like understand how all this stuff works does not itself translate to a business. Like, so what problem, so what is the problem that you're really trying to solve? There's a great book out now called Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution by the guy who founded Waze. And I think that's the kind of like, you know, you, you get so like kind of focused on the thing that you find interesting. That um, and like, oh, how would I solve you know for this? But you have to like really kind of think about like at the end of the day, like what is the problem that I'm trying to solve here? Because that's where the business is going to sit. Um, and I think over the first couple of years, like really kind of checking um, that reality of like what's the thing that we can really turn into something that's you know going to live as a as a business for the long term.
0: By the way, the book you just recommended—we'll link to it at the end. Uh, Yuri Levine, co-founder of Ways, um, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. That is such an amazing um, answer, man. I'm, I really, uh, I could, I could do like two more hours of interview with you because I feel like I keep, un, I keep. There are questions that come up in your answers that I want to dig deeper into. One of those is. How did you know this time was different? Like at what point did you realize you like, oh, we gotta go raise this seed round, not the pre-seed because we're nearing what feels like product market fit and we gotta go test this this machine in the in the field.
1: We are nowhere close to product market fit. Mm-hmm. So the, the seed round uh, was really about giving us a shot at doing the big thing that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. The pre-seed round was, was hey, can we put together enough proof points where this feels like it can be an ongoing, you know, endeavor, right? Can we put, put a team together? Can we, you know, some of the basic stuff, like can we do this carbon accounting stuff? Like we didn't really know, like when we first raised the money. So, but at that point we had like checked a bunch of those boxes that were like the, we have to have this, this stuff has to work in order for the big thing to work. Mm, And so, so now let's go, you know, spend six, seven months, you know, like building, the big thing, which is, you know, like an hourly rec registry, like we re- rebuilt like Vera, but for the built environment, yeah, uh, transactional, you know, registry, like all of the like infrastructure on top of the carbon accounting that was made possible by the fact that we had the seed round um, that right. we could now go, you know, bring all that to, you know, market. Um, and then, you know, from that will be the series A and then, you know, obviously beyond that.
0: How'd you decide who you're going to start this business with and who are they?
1: the first person that I called up was my college roommate
0: <laughs> yep
1: we'd met the first night of college and um I said hey I'm thinking about doing a thing you know he's a software engineer and and uh and he, he, you know I said would you be willing to do this with me and and is this is Keith yeah it's Keith yeah and uh he's he was like <laughs> uh maybe, (laughs) like, (laughs) uh, but it didn't take, uh, he was like, look, man, um, if you believe in this strongly, like, you know, I'll do it. Um, And so he came on and started working on, you know, some of the early stuff uh, before we even really had a a company uh, just trying to like figure out what we could do. Um, Another uh, friend of mine from, from college I'd known since college. um, I, you know, he had been working here in the city uh, for a, a FinTech company and, Convinced him. Uh, so two long-time uh, people, and, and then I, I brought in um, Hassan, who I would worked with at, at Recurve, and and so the four of us, you know, decided to to start the company together. Um, I don't, you know, I think in some ways the there's a you know, two of them are now no longer with the company. So Keith and Hassan are no longer with the company, mm-hmm. um, it, not because of them not being good or not them, you know, like there's a there's an evolution in the life cycle of a company where you know you like are really good at maybe the ideational stage or the early prototype stage and there's a there's a company stage fit there for for founders and i think at some point like i'll probably not be a good fit for this company anymore because it will have uh, i'll be bored or something or annoying or you know like like there's a you know there's I, I think you know a sweet spot for everybody and so we try to um, you know build the team around you know both that sort of core competency but also the trajectory that they can be on and that we can be on as a company as we try to become you know what we you know hope to be at some point
0: I have a few other questions I want to ask you before we round out the interview one of them is around um, terminology I find that like you said earlier we do tend to operate in a world of acronyms and Um, we, as a CEO, you have to be the storyteller. You have to actually break down the, the lexicon in a way that people make that makes it approachable. Where have you intentionally like strived to make the lexicon of your work more approachable? Can you give examples of like ways that people talk about it that you've consciously decided to, to to disintermediate and, and say in different ways?
1: Yeah, I, um, brought in somebody to our team, uh, a woman named Sarah Emery, who's our head of marketing Mm -hmm. uh, earlier this year uh, to kind of help us think uh, critically about the story that we were telling and, you know, the narrative uh, about the problem that we were trying to solve. And a lot of folks, you know, in the industry think about this in terms of like an energy problem, right? Where it's like, we're going to go build solar panels or we're going to, you know, like electrify everything or, and, Most people in the world, you know, like, don't want to think about that. Don't want to, don't care about Are are confused by, you know, what do you, what do you mean transmission is different than distribution? Like what, like what, you know, and so what resonates with people is that, uh, you make them more comfortable. You provide them with jobs, uh, you help them save money. uh, You help them, you know, create a better future for their kids and their kids' kids and i think that's an important part of like as an industry as we try to bring the energy transition more mainstream that we don't get lost in the sort of technicalities of what we do but we get you know comfortable talking in terms of the the ways in which we make people's lives better Mm -hmm. um, and the the ways in which people can have agency over their own lives and you know the the things that they want to do to be able to provide for their kids and and their kids futures so i think we've you know we've kind of leaned a little bit more into like building decarbonization as the which is still a little bit of a mouthful but when you think about like the idea of like wanting to decarbonize buildings versus you know like transform our energy system or Mm -hmm. something you know like that it's it it brings it into much more of a like a understandable like it's comprehensible that way like that you're like oh i understand buildings and then. You know, then it's sort of like you can break down the component pieces, and and that all starts to then like become way less overwhelming than, hey, we need to over you know like completely overhaul our energy system, and and then like.
0: Yep, and you know, you like you are talking about earlier. There are um, you can look at it in the sum of the parts, um, but the whole is building decarbonization and introducing the topic in that way and allowing. Each person, as they understand the underlying infrastructure or componentry of how a building creates carbon emissions, that that, that it's like a choose-your-own-adventure for them, right? And your company, your team's job is now to help guide that discussion with them, rather than confuse them with with jargon up front. I try to say this all the time to people, and I'm glad that I noticed that Sarah is on your team, and you know she leads with brand strategy and marketing as her sort of descriptors for herself on LinkedIn. I hope hope some get someday not only get to meet her but to i'm looking forward to seeing in the wild kind of the work that you guys are doing together to reframe the way people talk about the actual activity of decarbonizing buildings
1: steve jobs has a really nice way of thinking about this when he talks about innovation Um, he he says that you know when most people encounter a problem it seems really simple to them like Mm -hmm. building decarbonization like okay like how hard could that be like you know we just decarbonize our buildings right and um he says then you get into that problem you realize how complicated it is right And it's like oh but wait you know there's like gas and then fuel switching and then the grid and then the, this and then that and and yeah. he said what most people do who are entrepreneurs is they come up with a solution that matches the complexity of the problem mm-hmm. and they want to show everybody like kind of how smart they are and that they really understand the problem so they end up with like this really complicated thing he says innovation comes from taking that complicated solution and making it as simple and elegant as you first understood the problem. And so that when you present that solution to the world, it looks to people just like as that simple way in which they understand the problem and then they can engage the solution in a way that is much less intimidating for them. And but that's really hard to do is to get to that you know simple, streamlined, you know less complicated version, the easy button, as it were. Um, so that's I think that's you know kind of one of our guiding lights on this is like we've got to find the easy button for for this.
0: I couldn't do any better um, uh, justice to this interview uh, if I tried by asking a ton more questions on your philosophy. I think that's a great place to sort of uh, turn towards the the last few questions that I really want to ask around how you th- um, sort of organize your life. So <laughs> if you've made it this far, bear with us. You're about five <laughs> minutes from the end of the interview. Uh, thank you uh McGee, I'm just uh I am so grateful not only for Devin having recommended you but for you taking the the extra time um to dig in and and really uh allow for this probing um and to and and be th- and be so thoughtful to share how it has helped you structure in an academic way and in a real sort of real world way your entrepreneurial venture when you're not thinking about energy systems what do you nerd out about
1: I am a, uh, a huge uh, cycling uh, devotee, so I go. Yeah. I go both ride my bike uh, as well as I watch bike races and, and participate in, in two fantasy cycling leagues.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness! I didn't <laughs> even know was a, a thing.
1: It's mostly a bunch of Europeans, and you know they they know way more about this stuff than I do. But I, yeah. I get a, a big kick out of that.
0: I was going to say most folks. Connection to cycling that are not themselves cyclists, as Tour de France. <laughs> they just like which is happening,
1: which is happening yeah, right now. Exactly. <laughs>
0: I've been Good watching time. every stage.
1: Uh, by the time this interview airs, we will know who who won. Uh, but we will. Uh, yesterday's stage saw an American uh, come really, really close to winning on top of a really, really big mountain, and uh, mm-hmm. not quite make it there at the top, which is part of the you know the the, the fun of cycling is is yeah. the uncertainty of it. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that, um, you know, I think it's important for, for, for me, like the act of going out in the afternoon and just getting an hour bike ride in, uh, helps me to kind of like find equilibrium. And then, you know, oftentimes we'll go back to work. I'll go back to work at night. Um, but being able to carve out time for family, you know, for my wife, for my kids, super important, um, helps just kind of keep you grounded. And then having friends. I think one of the secrets that I found over the years is like part of like why I like doing cycling is that you end up with friends who are not in your industry. They don't care that you're the CEO. They don't, there's nothing about you that's special. Other they than aren't like,
0: impressed by you.
1: <laughs> no, other than how fast you can ride your <laughs> yeah. bike. Right. Or like whatever the thing is that you do. Right. And, and, uh, and to get, to be grounded in that way, uh, so that, and to be reminded of not to get too full of yourself, um, I think is, a really important part of the balance that you maintain um in this in this life and not to get too full of yourself in the sense of like you think you're awesome but also a reminder like as things are hard there's a lot in this world that's hard and a lot of people are going to go mm-hmm. through ups and downs and you're not special uh so that's right. don't like get too wrapped up in your own misery like go out for a bike ride go have a beer mm-hmm. and
0: live to fight another day yeah i love it um i uh Man, I'll point people who think life is hard to just listen to David Goggins for 10 minutes. Um, You know, I was on a run recently and um, I had something, I don't know, like some little pain, probably gas pain, you know? And I literally said, fuck up, Johnson. Your feet aren't broken. (laughs) You know, like keep running, right? right? (laughs) Fucker ran like a marathon on broken feet. Anyway, um, we've mentioned... Reboot by Jerry Colono, a link to Fall in Love with the Problem, uh Yuri Levine. Is there any other any other book that has had a meaningful impact that you would be remiss to have not mentioned to the listener?
1: I would say uh, you know, it's it's worth it's worth going back and reading something like Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, um, mm. A Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold, some of the old environment. If you're in if you're interested in, you know, what kind was of that almanac change for? a sand county almanac. Uh-huh. Aldo Leopold, these are the sort of older generation of books about the environment that okay. helped to catalyze, you know, our thinking around, you know, <sighs> ecosystems. Yeah, Silent Springs, and the
0: natu- quintessential.
1: Those are, you know, they're not, you know, necessarily like, you know, top of the charts these days, but I think it's it's mm-hmm. good perspective to have on the longevity of of, um, of the work that we're doing and that there is a history uh, to to what we've done.
0: Have you read jeremy leggett carbon I'm war not, no man should I? yeah i don't know you probably you, you're fine it's global warming the end That's of fun. uh the oil era you've read plenty i usually recommend this one to folks that are like well, how far back should i go i'm like at, at least the 90s people like this is not new <laughs> theory um but jeremy leggett um uh is a he's a legend in uh in the uk and um started a really well-known company over there so um that that's super helpful. You actually answered uh, some the question around consistent habit, and uh, I loved your advice to um, to founders. Where, if folks are so inclined, are you found? Where can people engage with you? I'm on LinkedIn, mm-hmm.
1: so that's a. I try to be active there. I'm like one of the the people who has faith and and LinkedIn as a as a place to engage, and yeah. engage and uh, have constructive dialogue. Um, I'm less active on Twitter, but you can, I'm Fierce McGee. Fierce McGee,
0: yep. you mostly posting cycling memes. Yeah, and
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've tried to figure out threads, uh, but so far. Are you Fierce
0: McGee there as well?
1: I think I'm McGee.Young on threads because it was my Instagram.
0: It adopts, I I stopped short because it adopts your Instagram. I'm like, ah, I just want want a different one.
1: Mm. Yeah. Uh, Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. Threads. Yep.
0: Indeed, and I can attest that um, McGee responded on LinkedIn before Devin had an opportunity to actually formally introduce us, so I'm grateful. Um, Nevertheless, for the recommendation from Devin, uh, I I yield to uh, anyone else who would like to make recommendations uh, like McGee, not that there is another McGee, but um, it really is important and helpful to help uh, continue to expand our network and support one another. And I'm really grateful. So in that, in that vein, is there anyone, uh, I, I, I almost never asked this question, but I asked it of Devin. So I'll ask it of you. If you had a chance to sit in the captain's chair and interview one person on as a Suncast host, who would you invite? on?
1: Yeah, this, oh man, what a, what a great question. There's, there are so many good people, uh, out there work, working on, you know, energy related, uh, projects,
0: mm-hmm. uh, climate. Don't overthink it. First person that came to your mind.
1: I've been. He's not an entrepreneur per se, but Tom O'Keefe in New York City uh, is organizing okay. a group uh, to to try to get Local Law 97 uh, enforced and to organize yes. the tech community to get to get active. Um, and uh, yes. I know he's a, he's an investor, an angel investor,
0: and and uh, some folks know him. So you'd uh, be a good, a Climate to talk Tech to you. investor. I just found him. Yeah, sweet. There yeah, you go. He looks young. Good, good, good on you, Tom O'Keefe. You're probably not a listener yet, but you will be. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, he went to UNC Chapel Hill. Look at that, McGee. It's, it's a small world, right? Connecting <laughs> dots. It is a small world indeed. Uh, get ready, Tom O'Keefe. Well, let's end today, as we usually do, McGee, with a bold prediction. Uh, as you think out uh, into the vast reaches of the world that what carbon is going to impact five, ten years from now, what carbon is successful, what do we get right to unlock the decarbonized building infrastructure and the platform that help make it possible
1: i think the the companies that are on the front lines the block powers of the world the the elephant energies you know the quick carbons will be household names mm-hmm. if what we've done is right you know you'll know more about dan conant and solar holler than you know you know about you know i don't know who, anybody else right these are going to be the the people on the front page of of the business, you know, magazines and the entrepreneurs that matter, um, are going to be the ones that are actually decarbonizing. And, Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, like, frankly, like our mission is, you know, we're only successful to the extent that we can help those who are out there who are getting their hands dirty, um, scale, be more impactful, be more effective. And so if, if, if they're winning, um, that means that, that we're doing a good job.
0: It's the second time that, uh, Dan and Solar Holler have mentioned I've really got to bring him on totally if, but uh, until then we have been regaled informed and highly I would say uh, entertained and educated by McGee Young the founder and CEO of Watt carbon McGee it was really a pleasure I look forward to having you back in some capacity on the show and I look forward to meeting you at some point probably in las vegas though neither n- neither you nor i or anyone else listening really wants to go there <laughs> no, we will make the best of it though <laughs> i'll see you in las vegas my friend i'll see you again uh in the interwebs thanks for joining us thanks nico all right solar warriors well that is a wrap on today's episode and man thank you you are you've already put in the mileage Uh, You are at the end of more than an hour and a half long interview, so I salute you. Thank you. You dug your heels in and said "This this is worth the popcorn and the price of admission, but your time is not free, and I hope that you have gleaned what you need from this episode. Ton of value bombs, a ton of really good quotables. I am going to go back and listen to this again. I uh, encourage you to do the same because I really do believe in an episode this long, there's more than one thread to follow, Uh, you know, the value of open source and really removing the black box is one that truly resonates for me and the work that we're doing uh, at at Suncast. You're going to hear in a few weeks, some of the things that we're doing, sort of stepping out of the shadows to talk a little bit more about other work that we're working on to remove the veil and the black box and help everyone share their truth. If you're eager to keep learning, and I'm sure you are, my fellow fellow math, I've linked to all the random stuff that came up in this interview, as well as all the really cogent and necessary points of uh, information, including all the stuff around Paul Romer and some of the writings from McGee, so you can get a sense of his his style and also hopefully go follow him. All of that, as well as his LinkedIn and his Twitter, uh, you will find on the blog at, uh, in the show notes in my Suncast. Com. Since hopefully you're going to jump over to LinkedIn, please take a look at the posts that we've made for this episode and the other uh, episodes as well. Uh, and drop a like in there, drop a comment, let let McGee know how important this interview was to you. Please direct message him. Uh, he is super responsive. I've found him to be inspirational. I've found him to be supportive uh, and he is certainly forward thinking. I hope that you will show him the love and reach directly out to him as well. As show us the love. Help us know that this meant something to you. What was it that resonated? Share it in the comments of our LinkedIn post, if you will. And I hope that you'll come back next week because that's where every Tuesday we have a deep dive with the subject matter expert to provide you with additional tools to support you on your journey and a long trek just like this one on Thursday's executive profiles with the leaders on the front lines, decarbonizing our energy grid and the rest of our infrastructure and uh, helping you figure out where you fit in this puzzle. I want to thank our sponsors who help make this show possible. They show up in ways that you uh, don't have the funds to so that you can get this content for free. And uh, in exchange, we agree to tell you all about them. Uh, SunGrow has been our annual premium sponsor for the last year and a half. We're so grateful for them. And uh, there are other sponsors that you can check out at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Of course, that's how you learn ways that you could partner with us to reach thousands of Solar Warriors and climate champions twice a week, every week for the last eight years. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Kia! Gio-